Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Brad Soboleski, and this is part one in a series focused on fractures. This is being done in honor of the seventh anniversary of PEMBLOG and PEM Currents, and I've broken things down by different parts of the body. I'm going to start out with forearm and wrist fractures, which I would wager that all of you have seen if you've taken care of kids in the emergency department. And before I move on to the rest of the podcast, I wanted to let you know that I am proud to offer CME for the first time ever for one of my podcasts in conjunction with Cincinnati Children's. Listen all the way to the end of the podcast for instructions on how to complete the post-test and claim your CME. Forearm and wrist fractures in kids represent about 40 to 50% of all childhood fractures. In fact, the distal forearm is about a quarter of all peds fractures in general. Most of these are in kids older than five, and it peaks in early adolescence, which makes sense because kids do silly stuff and fall on their arms. And in general, pediatric bones are more porous and flexible, and they have this thick periosteum. So you're going to see fractures that have deformation, like torus fractures or green stick fractures, and fewer fractures that actually need surgery like they would in adults. The most common mechanism of injury is foosh, fell on outstretched hands. These are sports injuries, playground injuries, and most of these are isolated to the forearm. You're not going to see an elbow fracture at the same time. On physical exam, you'll often have some clues that there may be a fracture. You know, the patient presents with pain, the parent's concerned about it. You may see a visible deformity, a swollen area, or even the dreaded swan neck, which looks like an S-type curve or even a second elbow in the middle of the forearm. The size of a hematoma can really belie a more subtle or obvious fracture underneath. Remember that blood's inside bones, and when bones break, that blood leaks out into the soft tissues. Always search the entire circumference of the forearm and look for small lacerations. An open fracture isn't just bone jutting out of the arm. A sub-centimeter puncture can indicate that the bone popped out and then back in, and that can bring dirt back inside the body with it. If the patient is splinted before arrival, you definitely need to take the splint down. Make sure you have pain control on board before you do that, and if you're going to have a supervising physician or an orthopedist, readily available. It's a good idea to try to get that look all at once. All right. And there's a reason I'm doing this one first. Uh, It's the neurovascular assessment. And you're going to want to reference back to this when you listen to the other upper extremity fractures, because this exam is important to learn. So you can assess in the forearm and wrist, the radial and brachial pulse. If there's no pulse, then the child needs immediate reduction. If the hand is cold and pale they need immediate reduction. Even if after reduction, there's no pulses or the hand is cold repair, then they need to go to the OR for vascular repair. This is super rare in children, but it bears mentioning. You want to make sure that you assess the color and temperature of the distal skin. And if the child's had ice on their wrist, obviously that's going to impact that. So for sensory, you're going to want to measure light touch. There's a quick sensory exam that you can learn and practice. A lot of it does depend on the developmental abilities of the child, uh, but you have to find ways to get them to cooperate. So to assess the sensory function of the radial nerve, it's the dorsal web space between the thumb and the index finger. The median nerve is the pointer or index finger, and the ulnar nerve is the pinky finger. And then the musculocutaneous nerve, which is a branch further up, is the lateral forearm. 
So motor function definitely can be limited, especially by development, as I alluded to a moment ago, and pain. So to assess the motor function of the radial nerve, you want to make sure the patient can do a thumbs up sign. Median, doing the okay sign maintained against resistance. Or you can have them pinch you. So this is taking the index finger and the thumb and putting them together. The ulnar nerve's motor function, you can assess by having them spread apart their fingers against resistance and or then bringing those fingers back together. If they can't do that, you can try to have the patient hold a piece of paper between the middle and ring finger and then try to slide it out. Now, I know that there's been a lot of work done with ultrasound and additional types of imaging, but the diagnosis of fractures in pediatrics is still made by x-rays. And for the forearm, you want to get the AP and lateral. If you're getting radius and ulna images, you want to make sure you have the wrist and the distal humerus included. Dedicated wrist and elbow can be obtained as clinically indicated. Note that less than 5% of forearm fractures also have associated elbow injuries. So if the arm is very deformed or if there's pain at the proximal forearm or at the elbow, include elbow films in addition to your radius and ulna. In general, getting a radius and ulna fracture is preferred if you're thinking that the fracture is in the distal third to middle third of the forearm itself. If you have pain just at the wrist physis and nowhere else, wrist films would be okay. And I mentioned ultrasound a moment ago. The uh, Dumaden-Hammer study um, showed a sensitivity of 98% and a specificity of 96% when performed by trained physicians. So you can get an ultrasound to confirm your suspicion of fracture, but you're still going to need an x-ray. In general, in terms of management, splinting and early pain meds help quite a bit. For non-displaced fractures, ibuprofen is perfect. For severe pain, you can go intranasal, so either fentanyl or ketamine, or IV, so morphine, fentanyl, or other agents you have available. Splint the arm as it lies before getting x-rays. You don't need a perfect splint at that point, just good enough. Right? So this is to stabilize the arm and to make it more comfortable so that you can get accurate images. If you have a child that you're going to send home, home pain management with ibuprofen is best. There's a randomized control trial from Drendel, uh, which goes over this very well. Any open fracture mandates a consult to pediatric orthopedics. Any fracture with neurovascular compromise, a Salter-Harris 3-4-5 fracture, any fracture that's complete with displacement and really significantly angulated fractures, and I'll go over some details in a moment, get an orthopedic consult as well. Generally, when fractures are healing in the form, they start to form a callus at about 10 days. Angulated fractures will remodel about 50% in the first six months and then the rest over 18 months. You know, there's 10 degrees of apex volar angulation will be corrected by the body on its own per year, so about one degree per month. All right, so that's a little bit of the background, neurovascular assessment, pain management, when to consult ortho, but let's look at some different types of fractures with some recommendations on management. So in general, the non-displaced fracture can be splinted in the ED, plaster or commercially available fiberglass is reasonable, and you can send these patients home. I recommend the sugar tong splint for most pediatric forearm and wrist fractures, especially those under 10, so that they don't wiggle out of it. You can consider a volar splint for the distal fracture in the compliant adolescent, 
Uh, if there's no significant swelling, you could even cast if you have resources available. If the forearm is really swollen, allow at least three days before a cast completely encircles that limb to prevent soft tissue injury. Open fractures, time to antibiotics is the most important. Uh, cefazolin or MRSA coverage, depending on history and local prevalence. Now, a type 1 open fracture, which is just that tiny little puncture wound less than a centimeter and clean, there's some evidence to suggest that this can be a non-operative injury with just irrigation alone, one dose of IV antibiotics, and immobilization in the ED. All right, let's move on to specific types of fractures. There's no better place to start than the torus or buccal fracture. This is usually at the distal metaphysis. The torus is the rounded part at the bottom of a, a Greek column. So if you Google that image, you'll see exactly what they meant when they came up with this name. So the cortex of the bone buckles under compression, but it doesn't snap or break through because of that thick periosteum. This is most commonly seen in the distal radius, but you can have these in the ulna as well. Management is a removable splint, sugar tong, or a volar splint, or even a short arm cast. You definitely don't need to call orthopedics for a buckle fracture. There are some small trials that show that a removable splint, Velcro or plaster fiberglass splint, is better tolerated by patients with well-controlled pain. A meta-analysis, you know, without significant deformity, the immobilization method probably doesn't matter much. That's from Abraham. If these are low-risk fractures, it's a simple buccal fracture. They can see their PMD in about 10 to 14 days. And if they're okay at three weeks, they can remove the splint. If there's bowing, or if it's both bone, if they have decreased range of motion or persistent pain, they can see ortho at that point. If the family desires, or if it's your local practice, you could also splint in the ED and have them follow up with ortho within a week. All right, so the second type of fracture of the forearm that is seen commonly in children is the green stick fracture. Think of a, a green twig on a tree and you try to snap it, it snaps on one side, but not the other. So you've got a complete fracture on one side of the radius and or ulna, and then buckling or plastic deformity of the other side. Now, these are different than torus fractures. These definitely need to be in a cast, and kids will be in it for about six weeks, and most often it's just a short-arm cast. Initially in the ED, if they're neurovascularly intact, you can do a sugar tong splint. Kids with a green stick fracture definitely need orthopedic follow-up, and it's best within three to five days. So how angulated is too angulated, or when do kids need reduction? Well, a lot of this does depend on where you work in local practice, but the following angles may require reduction. So less than 5 years old, greater than 10 to 30 degrees on a lateral film, and, and or greater than 10 degrees on an AP film. 5 to 10 year old, greater than 10 to 20 degrees on a lateral film, and greater than 10 degrees on an AP film. And a child who's older than 10 or an adolescent, it's greater than 5 to 15 degrees lateral and any angulation on the AP view. So this highlights the importance of getting accurate AP and lateral x-rays when you're imaging the forearm. So the risk of refracture is a little bit higher in, in green stick, certainly much higher than buckle, and that's why six weeks of casting is often needed. There's kind of a variant of the green stick, and this is plastic deformation alone. So the bone just bows, but doesn't snap on either side. This is really only seen in young kids under four years of age, you know, the preschooler who falls off playground equipment. And if the angulation is less than 20 degrees in the lateral plane, you can immobilize alone with a sugar tongue. If the interosseous space is narrowed between the radius and ulna, you know, there's more uh, angulation there, and these kids probably need close reduction. 
All right, so let's take a look at fractures of the physis. So Salter-Harris-1 is a non-displaced fracture with pain over the physis. That x-ray can look normal, can have subtle asymmetry across the distal radial physis. These kids do fine with a removable volar splint or sugar tongue splint and PMD follow-up in 7 to 10 days. If pain's still present at that point, re-x-ray. If you see signs of fracture or asymmetry, well, then it's probably a Salter-Harris-1. If they're completely pain-free, well, then they could probably come out of that splint. If you see a Salter-Harris-2 non-displaced fracture, you can splint them or short-arm cast them for three weeks. These kids definitely need orthopedic follow-up. If they are displaced at all, call orthopedics immediately. And remember, Salter-Harris-2 is the most common type of physio fracture in children. Salter-Harris 3, 4, and 5 are much more likely to need open reduction. Fortunately, they're more rare. But if you see any of these fractures in the forearm, especially at the wrist in kids, splint as it lies and call orthopedics immediately. They have a much higher risk of growth arrest, asymmetry, than a type 1 or type 2. So complete fracture pass through both cortices. They don't affect the physis. You can have swan neck deformity, you can have a bayonet deformity where a fragment that is proximal sticks out beyond the distal fragment, you know, kind of like that knife that sticks out from the bottom of a rifle. And complete fractures in kids are rarely comminuted like they are in adults. And these are the kind that can be open. So again, remember to search the entire circumference and surface of that arm. Look for that little puncture hole. Any kid with a complete fracture needs ortho follow-up. Generally, if it's greater than 20 degrees angulation, they're going to need closed reduction. The risk of needing to go the OR and open reduction is much higher for kids older than 10 years of age. If there's not much angulation, you know, less than 10 degrees um, and not much lateral shift, so less than 2 millimeters, well, these kids can be splinted in a sugar tong and see ortho within a week at most. Now, unfortunately, complete fractures um, have up to about a 25% chance of displacing even after a good closed reduction. And the refracture risk is highest in adolescents. In fact, it's eight times more likely in them than in younger kids. Another fracture that you might see, and most often in conjunction with a radial injury, is the ulnar styloid fracture. This is an avulsion of that little triangular projection at the end of the ulna. Um, it's almost always non-operative. Another one that shows up on test is the Galeazzi fracture. This is a fracture of the distal third of the radius and dislocation of the distal radial ulnar joint. This is super rare in kids, but it definitely mandates an urgent orthopedic consult. And just because they're so closely associated with their fancy Italian names, a Montegia fracture, which I'll talk about in the Elbow podcast, is a proximal ulna fracture with a radial head dislocation. All right, so that's all I have for fractures of the forearm and wrist. Know that most likely you'll see a distal forearm fracture in a kid who has fallen on an outstretched arm, and most commonly these are buckle fractures or green stick fractures. Salter-Harris 2 is the most common type of physeal fracture, and complete fractures are much less likely to be comminuted in kids than they are in adults. The amount of angulation that you can tolerate without needing closed reduction, decreases as the kid gets older. X-ray-wise, you definitely need an AP and lateral X-ray that gets the entire forearm from wrist to elbow. Practice that neurovascular assessment. 
If you have any concerns about deficits, call ortho early. Pain control for most kids with non-displaced fractures centers around the use of ibuprofen. It's just a fantastic medicine with low risk of complications, and in trials it works better than opiates. If there's an obvious deformity, splint the limb as it lies, give pain control, get x-rays, and get ortho involved. And always take down a splint and search the entire arm to look for any signs of an open fracture, especially if the child is transferred from another facility or pre-hospital environment. And note that recommendations on angles for reduction may differ depending on where you work. So I encourage you all to learn your local practice environment and what is recommended by your orthopedists before making a decision. All right, so that's all that I have on forearm fractures. Remember that this episode has the detailed description of the neurovascular assessment of the upper arm that'll be useful for future episodes to come. You can find more great educational content on pemblog.com, including seven years worth of Fracture Friday cases. Just search for it on the site. Leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your content. I'd really appreciate the feedback. If you'd like to earn some CME for this podcast episode, click on the link to the Cincinnati Children's Online Courses in the show notes or on the associated post on PEMblog. Once you're on the Cincinnati Children's Online Courses site, search for PEM Currents, complete two quick questions, and you get some CME. Thank you for all of your support, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. For PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast, this has been Brad Soboleski. See you next time.